Well, hey, open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, and we're going to continue doing what we've been doing, is working through the text. That's what we do. We preach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we aim to apply it to our lives. Uh, as you're turning to 1 Timothy, I'll tell you, um, one of my favorite teachers that I had in college was a man by the name of Jack Simons. Um, Whenever I mention him, I, I have to clarify my son, who's also named Jack, isn't named after this Jack, although this Jack didn't ruin it. So there's, there's a good thing about this Jack. He was one of my favorite teachers, an ex-military guy who taught all things literature. Um, and in my major, I had a lot of classes with him. He was one of those teachers, maybe you've had them, that you just want to please. Uh, one of those teachers that you just really like because you can tell he, he loves his class, he loves his subject, he holds you to high standards, he shows you that he respects you, and you respect him for it. He, he is just one of those teachers that has a big influence on everyone who goes through his class. And for whatever reason, in my class, when I got to know this guy, Dr. Simons, um, he would always encourage me to join the military. I don't know why. He would say that I should join the military, and, and, and not just that I would join the military. He would always tell me, sometimes he'd pull me aside after class, and he would tell me, Eric, you should join the military, and I think you should become a Navy corpsman. I had no idea what that meant. I'm still not quite sure what a corpsman is. But apparently, it's the guy who doesn't have the weapon. It's the guy who kind of helps out and gives medical aid to some of the soldiers who are on the front lines. And as I learned that later, I figured, did he just not want me handling a weapon? Didn't trust me with a gun? Maybe, maybe that's why he wanted me to be a corpsman. I, I didn't know why, but I figured, uh, what is this role? What is a corpsman? And why did he want me to do that? I ended up not taking his advice as much as I loved and respected him and went a completely different direction. But it always stuck with me. Eric, you should be a Navy corpsman. As I looked up into more what that means, I find out that there are many different moving pieces to a battle or to a military operation. You got those who are the soldiers who are on the front lines. You got those who are, like I said, the, the, the medics, those who act as corpsmen. They're ready to take in and help anybody who's hurt or injured to give aid to the people. They're not necessarily the ones fighting, but they're helping the ones who are fighting. Uh, you think of a battle uh, that, that is going on for days. Well, how do they get food to the soldiers? And you figure there's got to be people who think about storing and moving and distributing food. Uh, you got to think of the people who build temporary facilities like those mobile tents that they set up on the battlefield. And then there's not even those. There's those who are not even on any battlefield. They're back in offices in different places that are providing oversight, maybe a general that had strategy that offered to his people and they go and uh, execute the plan that was, that was planned up. In other words, in any kind of military operation, you got people doing all kinds of different things. It's a complex operation with lots of moving parts and many of those are necessary for success. If you only had corpsmen out there, you wouldn't be able to make any advances. If you only had generals in the back office making strategic plans and no one on the front lines, of course you couldn't make any advance. If all you had was soldiers and no one to help them out, you could maybe get somewhere, but you wouldn't last long because you wouldn't have all the other moving parts that go into supporting the advance of the army. 
Now, I want you to have that image in your mind as we think about how God has organized the local church. Jesus is the head of the church. He, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, as the resurrected head of the church gives gifts to His body. Uh, he's called the chief shepherd. You could even maybe translate that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, the chief pastor of the church. Every other pastor or elder is an under-shepherd of Christ. He is the overseer of our souls. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. He leads us, He's over us, and He gifts us according to His sovereign will. And He gives us different people with different gifts and appoints people to different positions all so that we can have not all the same people doing the same thing, but different varieties of people who serve in varieties of ways. So you and I, we might be alike in some things, but we are not the same exactly. And every one of us, if you were to look around this room, have different gifts, different abilities, different backgrounds, different ways God has gifted you. And God has called all of us in various ways to contribute in the way He's shaped us for the building up of the body of Christ. Now this begins to play itself out when you begin to look at how God is even structuring the local church. One of the reasons, honestly, I chose first Timothy to preach through as one of the first main books, ones I got out here, was I wanted to learn from the Word of God what He has to say about what churches should do, how they should act, what they should prioritize. And this letter, as you're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is exactly that, isn't it? It's Paul, an apostle, writing to Timothy who's helping a dysfunctional church. Timothy has to go into this church in Ephesus and right all the wrongs. Uh, there's bad leadership in that church. He's got to figure out how to deal with that. He wants them to prioritize certain things. He tells them to prioritize corporate prayer. They start talking about leadership. For the last three weeks, we've been looking at the qualifications for overseers in chapter 3, verses 1-7. to And now, we get to another section. Look at it with me in chapter 3, verse 8. If you have that editorial heading in your Bible, you would see that it's called qualifications now for deacons. Deacons. Now, when you're committed to verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, exposition of the Word of God, you encounter all kinds of subjects. And sometimes you say, well, is this exactly what my congregation needs at this moment? And in human wisdom, we go, I don't know. I, I, I'm not exactly sure what everyone needs to hear. But when you're committed to just go through the text, we just trust the Lord that the Lord is going to use His Word to shape His church. And so when we encounter this part, we say, okay, the Lord wants us to learn about deacons this morning. And so we're going to talk about deacons. I, I want to hear from you though, real quick. Have you ever heard a sermon on the topic of a deacon? Just raise your hand real quick. Just so I can. Some of you have, and less than half of you have, more than not, you have not heard a sermon on the topic of deacon. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm not totally surprised. You might think, what's the relevance of this? Uh, why are we talking about another office in the church? We just talked about elder. Now we're going to talk about uh, the office of deacon. And some of you might even come from a background where uh, the church just kind of feels a little too institutionalized and all this talk about offices and elders who are appointed to a position and deacons who hold an office and have specific roles seems a little bit too institutional. And you say the, the church is an organism. The church is not to be so structured. That's just too much. 
Uh, and yet we come into the, this text and it's really clear that not only has God given an office for elders, we looked at that the last three weeks, but He gives a specific office, a specific role to the people He calls deacons. Deacons in the church. It comes right after the section for elders and then it comes right into the section on deacons as we've got to address it. And what I want to do in this text is look at this and I hope to apply it to the whole of everyone here, even if you've never heard of a deacon, don't know what it is, and don't really care to know, I hope to explain it so you understand not only what this is, but what it entails for all of us as a body. In fact, I hope that some of you, as a result of this, this, this message, would either say, I want to be a servant of Christ. And I want to excel still more at that. I hope that might be some of your reaction to this. And I even hope that some of you might say, oh Lord, maybe I could serve as a deacon one day. And I could help the church in this specific way. And we could even start that conversation as we grow together as a family. Uh, so I want to look at this. I want to start by looking at the Word. We're going to look at the Word deacon. The origin of the office of deacon, the role of deacon, the qualifications of deacon, and then the reward of deacon. Let's start with the word. Uh, the word deacon is not something you hear about outside of the Bible, right? I, I don't know if you've ever heard someone referring to uh, another as a deacon outside of what the scriptures teach. Um, this is a word that gets transliterated straight from the Greek. Uh, there's a difference between a transliteration and a translation. A transliteration was when you take the Greek word and basically don't interpret it. You just change it to English and you use it that way. And so the word in Greek is diakonos. And what they did when they translated the ESV and many of our New Testament translations is they, instead of interpreting what it actually meant, they just transliterated and they called deacon. So when you read this word deacon, most of the time it is the Greek word in the New Testament, diakonos. In fact, when you read through the New Testament, almost every time you see these words, serve, ministry, sometimes help, um, these are words that are translated from the word deacon, diakonos. Diakonos means servant. That's what that word means. Diakonia in Greek means service. Diakoneo in Greek means to serve. That's the verb form. And all of these words are about serving, about assisting, about helping, about ministering to others. Uh, sometimes they're translated that. Whenever you see here Paul talking about, I've been made a minister. Uh, the word there is deacon. I've been made a servant. I've been made a helper of Christ. The word is used in the general sense to refer to Christians in general who just want to serve. Uh, Paul is calling himself a deacon in Colossians 1.23. Tychicus in Ephesians 6.21 calls himself a deacon. Epaphras in Colossians calls himself a deacon. You wouldn't see it in your English translation because in the Greek it's just diakonos, but then they translate it. They translate to minister or servant. And what we find from this reality is that every one of us is called to be, in this general sense, a deacon. You're called to be a servant. All Christians in one sense are to be servants, ministers, helpers, assistants. We are under the authority of Christ and we are here to serve in whatever way we can. I just want to stop and, and point out something here that's I think important for us to hear and be reminded of is that the Bible puts a premium on that which the world doesn't. 
Most of the people in the world, many people in the world, maybe not all, but many, would rather put a premium on the upfront leadership, the visible leadership. The, 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 I want to have some face time up front and, and I want to be the one in charge. We hear all the time people saying, I want to lead. I want to get up front. I want to do this uh, leadership. I want to be the one at the front of the line. I know I talk to any of my kids. If I uh, ask them to get in line, what are they going to do? They're going to fight to see who can be the one in front. It's kind of like the human nature. We want to be first. We hear all the time, I want to lead. I want to be first. I want to be in charge. I want to be the one who's up front. But how often do we hear, I want to be a helping hand. (laughs) I want to be behind the scenes where no one even knows my name and I just want to serve. Well, this is what service, ministry, deaconing, helping, assisting is. This is what the Bible really exalts. This is something that the the Bible really puts on display as something for all Christians. That we are to be servants. All Christians, in some ways, are called deacons, helpers, assistants, ministers. I don't know if you came to church this morning mainly focused about what you might get out of the service. Or maybe you walked into the doors and you had your agenda and your hope was maybe I'm just here to learn something and that's good and to worship and that's great. You should do those things. But the Bible calls us all deacons, which reorients us a little bit, doesn't it? That you are to come to your church family and even to consider yourself throughout the week as a servant. As one who will invest in others to build them up. To put yourself to the side so you can work for the good of others. So there's this general sense where every Christian in the Bible is called a deacon and we're called to serve in this way. But then, there's this passage that we're looking at this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that calls um, for a specific office uh, that you are appointed to. That's a deacon. And so they transliterate it into deacon to refer to the office. We know it's an office because he gives qualifications for it in verses 8 to 13. And we also know because in Philippians 1.1, Paul addresses specifically the deacons. Listen to this in Philippians 1.1. I don't think you have to turn there. But this is another case where we see that there is an office of deacon for the New Testament. Paul writing, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, he addresses all the saints. That is, he's addressing all Christians in this church. Every Christian who trusts Christ, that that is a definition of a Christian, if you're trusting Christ, you are a saint, the Bible says. You are uh, made holy by what the work of Christ accomplished for you. You are a saint. And so that's what it is. He addresses the saints. That's the whole church. But listen to this. I address the saints with the overseers and deacons. So he's addressing, he's got the whole church he talks to, and then he divvies up two separate groups. Overseers, that would be also called elders. And then he's got deacons there. A separate group of people he is addressing. So here's what I'm getting at. The Bible teaches that all Christians are called to be deacons in the sense that we're servants. We're ministers of one another. We're here to help. We're here to assist you in your your walk with the Lord. That's every person's responsibility. But the Bible also then calls for us to have a specific office, a role to play in the church where 
people are set into this role to serve in unique and specific ways. I want to just show you how this came to be. And this will help you understand what exactly deacons are supposed to do. So turn your Bibles to Acts, backwards to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we see the idea of the deacon first being developed. And what's happening, I mentioned this last Sunday, and we see a division of labor here. In Acts chapter 6, this is the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church has been growing like a wildfire here. People are coming to the Lord. Thousands of people now are part of the church. At this point, the church is over 10,000 people strong, and they're meeting in Jerusalem. They're also meeting in house to house. We see that in chapter 5, verse 42. They're in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So this church is just growing and meeting, and there's this great life to this body of believers. Now look in chapter 6, verse 1. A problem happens. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. And so you got the Hebrew-speaking Jews, you got the Greek-speaking Jews, and now there's some division that begins to come up. Why? Because the Hebrews, or against the Hebrews, because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's a daily distribution going on, and for whatever reason, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, are not getting the attention they need. These poor widows are not getting the care they need. Verse 2. And so the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve, to deacon, is the word, tables. So here's the problem. We have all these people here. There's a whole bunch of needs. We need to distribute to all of them, and yet some of them are being neglected. These poor widows, these Hellenists are not being cared for in the way they should. So there's this complaint. There's a potential division. What should we do? The apostles recognize there's a problem, and so they gather all the disciples together. It's not right that we stop preaching. Okay, this is a big problem, but this is not problem enough to stop the preaching of the Word from happening. This is not problem enough to distract the apostles from doing Word ministry. That's their primary calling. We saw that last week when we looked at the elders' call to be able to teach. They must teach. So that's their primary and fundamental responsibility. So what do they do? The primary teachers of the Word need something um, to help them out because this is a real problem that needs to be addressed. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Do you see the division of labor? Word ministry? Serving ministry. Now you could say that the Word ministry is a form of serving. You're serving the Word. That's actually totally true and legitimate. But we see that there's a fundamental categorical difference in what is the, the aim of each. The, the apostles are going to set aside their priority as preach the Word, teach the Word, pray for the people. That's their role. And they're going to appoint others as servants to go and meet the logistical needs of the people in the church. These poor widows are being neglected. Let's get people to take care of them. Now, why do they do that? It is so that the Word can continue being preached and the people will not be neglected. Do you see what's happening here? There's a division of labor. Think back to that military analogy at the beginning of the message here is that you got some people who are on the front lines and you got some people who are going to do the backup job to make sure the guys on the front lines can keep doing their job. Neither of them is better 
Neither of them is not superior and inferior. It's a question of both of these things need to happen. They're both valuable. Widows need to be cared for. They need to be, dis- be a part of the distribution. But you can't give up the preaching of the Word. And so what's happening, you get these other people, they're, they're called to deacon the tables. They're, they're called to, to be servants of the people. So the Word ministry can continue. They were like assistants to the overseers to enable the overseers, to enable the elders, or to the enable, in this case, the apostles, to continue the ministry of the Word without being stopped by the practical needs. This is not for an instant saying that the practical needs didn't matter. It is saying that they mattered so much that they needed people to rise up and take care of them, but it wasn't to the degree that they would stop preaching and teaching God's Word. So the main question for a deacon is this. How can I assist the elders in the care for the church in their overseeing with the Word and with prayer so that they're not distracted by all the other logistical things that are happening in a normal church family? Think of it this way. What would get in the way of the ministry of the Word? Suppose, in a purely hypothetical world, that this roof began to leak on a rainy day. Hypothetical, right? No. Not hypothetical at all. In fact, some of the stains are evidence that we have a roof problem. Now suppose that the roof begins to leak. You don't want your pastor on the roof for many reasons. Reason number one, I don't know how to fix anything. I can't fix a thing. You, you get me on the roof, I'm not getting any, anything done. I, I'm, I'm probably going to fall off the roof. You're going to feel really bad that you had me get on the roof. Um, it's, it's just not going to be good. I, I wouldn't have any idea what to do. But another reason you wouldn't want me on the roof is because if I'm on the roof all week trying to figure out how to patch it up and stop the leak, I'm not going to be able to deliver you a good sermon. Now, 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 here's the thing. The elders and leaders and preachers and teachers in a church ought to be willing to do anything. I'm willing to get up there. I'm just going to say, I don't know if you want me up there. In other words, the, the, the elders are willing to serve in whatever way that God would have them, but they also know that their priority is the preaching-teaching ministry, word ministry, prayer ministry, shepherding ministry. You want a spiritual meal. You want to come to Sunday morning. You want to be fed the Word of God. You want to come and, and, and know that, that, that you're getting something that's been thought through, it's been studied well, and it's being delivered in a way that you can receive it. That's what the church family needs on a, as it gathers, isn't it? Don't you, you, don't, you don't want half-baked messages. You want the Word fed to you to build you up. In fact, this is what the church needs. And so... God has ordained in the church a division of labor where the elders, overseers, slash pastors are giving themselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer and that God also raises up others who get appointed to be deacons. And they're the ones that get on the roof. And they're the ones that help out in the practical needs. They're the ones that help with logistics. It's a a beautiful thing when these things begin to work together in harmony. You might ask yourself, you might ask yourself, well, so 
does Grace Rancho have any deacons? Well, remember, in, in, a, in a general sense, yes. If, if you're following Jesus and you're aiming to serve Him, you're a deacon in the general sense. Or you're a minister of Christ. You're a servant. You are here to serve God first and one another. This is absolutely true in the specific sense of do we have any people who have been appointed to serve in that specific role? We will say not yet. And part of our prayer is that we would see people raised up who desire that role, who want to fit in that role, and want to be appointed that role, and they want to serve so that the Word of God can continue being prioritized, preached, and ministered the way the elders, overseers, pastors should do that. And so these people who are called to uh, be the, the lead servants, you might say, the, the lead assistants, the, the helpers, these deacons, they got to be people who you can trust, right? In many cases, the deacons are over finances. You see in the Acts 6 scenario where they had to, the, these, these guys had to be able to go through the widows and figure out who had the need and they had to take uh, the distribution and give it to the appropriate people. They had to be somewhat competent. You had to be able to trust them. And so, go back to 1 Timothy 3 when Paul is writing to Timothy how that church needs to be healthy, he gives them qualifications. Not just anyone can step up and fill the role and be appointed a deacon. These people who would do this would have to meet specific qualifications. Now I'm going to read the qualifications in verses 8-13, to 13, and I want you to notice as we do, they're very, very, very similar to the elders' qualifications. And so I don't think we need to spend so much time on them because we spent the last three weeks on elder qualifications but I want to point out some things. Chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. See, the qualifications are given to the deacons. I want to break those up into four main categories. First, deacons have to be people who have a measure of self-mastery. Self-mastery. See, they're called to be dignified. That is to have a life worthy of respect. This is someone whose life is orderly. It's not so chaotic. It demands the respect of the people around them. They're, they're dignified. People see that person walk in the room, they say, there's a trustworthy individual. I respect that person. This person has lived in such a way that I can offer them my respect and I can even... Uh, give them my loyalty and I know that they will not let me down. They're dignified. Uh, secondly, they're, they're not double-tongued. In other words, they're sincere. To be double-tongued, you know what that means, is to say one thing to you guys and say another thing to you guys and, and try to play this duplicitous game. Uh, someone who's so afraid of what people think, they're willing to kind of please you uh, and then they're trying to please you too and, and the things that they're saying are just not matching up. They're always trying to make people happy. To be double-tongued is a big, huge integrity problem, and the person who's double-tongued would not be a good deacon. They've got to be honest. 
They can't be deceitful. They're going to be trusted to take care of some really important matters of the church. Often, deacons help with finances. You don't want to put someone who's double-tongued, who's deceitful, in charge of money. They've got to be a third here under the self-mastery thing. They can't be addicted to much wine. They can't be getting drunk all the time. Elders were given the same qualifications. They can't be drunkards. They have to have a certain self-mastery, a certain kind of self-control. They know when to stop. They know what's wise. They don't push any borders. They don't use their Christian liberty to do as much as they think they can. As long as they feel I'm not sinning, I can do as much as I can. I can go right up to the line of sin and stop. No, there's a measure of mastery, of discipline. And so they don't get drunk. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. In this particular setting that Paul is writing to Timothy, it is obvious from the flow of the letter that some of the leaders were only in it for money. They're only in it for money. And so he's got to correct them. If you're trying to get a leadership position in the church, listen, you can't be in it for the money. And so elders can't be greedy. And here the deacons, they can't be in it for any dishonest gain. In fact, that kind of goes against the whole thrust of what a deacon is. A deacon is someone who's a lowly servant who doesn't care for the attention, doesn't need to be up front. In fact, this is what all Christians should be. And so they're not in it for themselves. So they show some self-mastery. Secondly, not only do they show self-mastery, they have sound doctrine. They have sound doctrine. Look at verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. See, the one fundamental difference between an elder and a deacon is that the elder has one extra qualification. Did you see it? The elder has to be able to teach. And that is not a qualification for a deacon. Elders are primarily given the responsibility to handle the Word of God and to teach it and to counsel with it and to lead with it. That's their fundamental responsibility. Deacons don't have that same responsibility. They are, underneath the oversight of the elders, sent out, dispatched, to help accomplish things that would maybe get in the way of their responsibility to preach the Word. And so it's not fundamental to the role of deacon that they are teaching. Now, deacons can teach. They're allowed to. It's not like once you're a deacon, you're locked up and never able to teach or preach again. That's not what he's saying. Just not, it's not a requirement. It's not fundamental to their role. It's not a fundamental aspect of their responsibility. Elders are to be the finally responsible um, people in the church who are caring for that the church gets preached and taught and filtered throughout the life of the congregation. The deacons are assisting them in removing the obstacles that get in the way so they can charge forward with the Word of God. And so they have to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conviction. And what that means is, is, is not that the, 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 the faith is a, this big mystery and they don't know. A mystery in the New Testament is something that God had previously not fully veiled and now had veiled. It's like a secret that's now out. And so they have to know, the deacons have to have sound doctrine. And they have to hold it with a clear conscience. That means they're not doubting it all the time. They're not unsure of it. They're not like, eh, yeah, Jesus might have risen from the dead, but I'm not sure. No, a deacon must hold the, the basics of, of the Christian doctrine with a clear conscience. They're, they're not in their own consciences wondering if this is true. So they've got to hold it with a clear conscience. They've got to believe the faith to have it have sound doctrine. 
So they have self-mastery. They're disciplined. They got sound doctrine. They, they, they understand doctrine. Third, look at this. They got to be tested. They got to be tested. Look at verse 10. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. You know, some churches in effort to, to grow really fast and to uh, get people sticking around will take people and immediately put them into positions of leadership or service or authority without really having them been tested like this says. And, and often it's, it's putting people into deacon-type roles and they've never been tested like the Scriptures say deacons should be tested. And the sad thing is, is this sometimes comes back to bite them because the person gets appointed too quickly. In, in business... Uh, people will say it's much easier to hire, but it's much harder to what? To fire. Uh, sometimes in churches, people come in and they show this exuberance and zeal and they want to help, and so the church gets all excited and they put them in a position of leadership or in a, a position like a deacon in, in some form of service, and it turns out they, they kind of got them wacky beliefs or they're kind of going sideways in the way they're talking to people. They're starting to divide the church. And now this person's in a prominent position and the church has to figure out what to do about that. Well, to mitigate that problem, there's a really simple solution. <laughs> a really biblical solution. Turns out the Bible is like really wise. And so what it says that if someone would be a deacon in the church, they need to be tested first. And that's pretty simple, right? You've got to get to know the person. You've got to see how they operate you got to see what they believe you got to see how they treat people another method of churches i've read this in, in some of the church growth books in an effort to help their church grow really fast their philosophy is if you walk in those doors i'm going to give you a job to do as quickly as i can i'm going to give you a role to play as quickly as you can because if you have a job to do and if you have a role to play you're going to end up sticking around Again, I'm just not sure that matches up with what God would have us do as a church. The, our, the logic here is this, that the people who will be serving in a prominent way, that they're bearing a, a load for the church, they're going to help this church move forward, have to be tested. They have to be proven. Look at what it says. Let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Irreproachable is that word. It's the same word that goes back and talks about the qualification of an elder. They must be above reproach. A deacon can only be a deacon if after time in testing, they prove themselves to be above reproach. That you don't point at them and look at some big fatal flaw in their ministry. So they got to be tested first. I think there's just so much pain that the church has endured because people have gotten to leadership roles, important roles, without proper vetting, without biblical testing, without biblical proving themselves, as this text encourages us. And so they have to be tested first. They have to be self-mastery. They, they have to have sound doctrine. They have to be tested. And, and fourth, we're going to look at the, the exemplary home life. But I, I want to pause for a second and look at verse 11 because this kind of is a difficult verse. It says, verse 11, read with me, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
you might think, why, why a, a break from the qualifications from deacons to begin talking about the deacons' wives? Uh, in order to be a deacon, must you have a wife that meets these qualifications? Well, to be totally honest, I don't think the ESV, which is the Bible that I preach from, did a great job interpreting this. And I'm going to tell you why. Uh, does anybody have an NASB translation? Now, the NASB, I think, does a better job here to understand what is happening. Because what we see is in Greek, what is being said in verse 11 is, is a little bit different from what you might understand if you only have the ESV. First of all, in the Greek, the word that we translate wives here is gunikas, and it can be translated either or between wives or women. It can go either way. And that's why an NASB translation actually doesn't have the word wife there. It has the word women. What's also interesting about what the Greek says is there's no plural possessive pronoun there. The word there, do you see it? It's not in the Greek. What it literally says is women likewise dignified. That's the, that's the three-word phrase in Greek. Gunikos, likewise dignified. There's no plural pronoun. And so, the, the question, and listen, I've read a lot of commentaries and trying to see what the scholars think, and they just divide. Uh, they're, they're down the line. There's no consensus on whether this should be referring to deacons' wives or whether this is referring to women. My take on this text is that in the midst of giving qualifications for deacons, he then begins to talk to women. And specifically, women who would want to serve as a deacon. He says women likewise must be dignified. One of the reasons I think this is because in this time, the, the, the feminine form of deacon, which would have been deaconess, was not an existing word in Greek. It didn't exist. There was no feminine form of the word deacon. And so what he had to do was just use the word for women as he's talking about uh, the deacon. I think Romans chapter 16, verse 1, it mentions a woman named Phoebe and she's called a deacon in the church. I think that might support that he's not referring to wives of deacons. Rather, he's referring to women who would desire to serve as deacons. There's another reason why I think that this is referring to women deacons is because it would be odd if the elders had no such qualification for their wives, but only the deacons did. So here's what I'm thinking. I don't think we can be dogmatic about this. But I think the interpretation of this is Paul is now talking to the women who would desire to serve in such a way and he gives them specific directions. They, can't be dig or they have to be dignified. They can't be slanderers. They have to be sober-minded. They have to be faithful in all things if they would be to function as a deacon in the church. I think that women here can be deacons. And they would serve under the oversight of the elders to serve in specific ways to help the ministry of the Word continue. I think a secretary who's doing a whole bunch of admin work that's helping the ministry of the Word continue so the elders are not having to do this stuff? I think that's deacon work. I think that's something a deacon do. A deacon group doesn't meet together like a board and make decisions for the leadership of the church. The deacons are the, the ones who assist the elders. They're helpers, ministers, servants of the vision of the church. 
Okay, so you understand this. I think this is saying that it is okay for women to serve in such a capacity as a deacon. And then we get into verse 12 where he goes to talk about the home lives of the deacons. Look at with me in verse, thir- or, sorry, verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their household, or sorry, managing their children and their own households well. The same qualifications were given for elders. Husband of one wife. This is, could be translated one woman man. There's a purity. This person, when it comes to their marriage, they're not playing the field and looking around. They're devoted to their spouse. They're committed. There's a sexual purity and fidelity that's characterizing this deacon. They also have to have their children in order. They can't be running wildly and chaotic and rejecting the authority of their own parents. The place... Remember, we talked about deacons being tested. The primary place where a deacon is tested is in the home. How do the kids follow the leadership of the parents? How do they respect His authority? How do they follow Him? Now, this causes us to to pause and just address all of us because this is such a priority in just Christian life in general. How's your home life? How's your marriage? How is your relation with your children? If you would ever want to have a ministry in the local church, it will start. Husbands, the way you love your wives, the way you lovingly and tenderly lead your children, the way you demonstrate your competency and your character in the home. In the serving of your family, enables you to overflow into the serving of your church. If you ever find yourself thinking, oh man, life's busy, and i got to make a choice between loving my family or serving my church, listen, it's a false choice. Jesus doesn't make you make that decision. The responsibility is to love your family. And if you love your family well, you will be loving the church well. In fact, one of the best ways to love the church is to love your family and to manage your household well and to take care of your wife and your kids and to be the one that God has called you to be in the home. And that qualifies you for service here in the body. And so start there. And so if there are issues at home, let me just encourage you. Deal with those. Have a strong marriage. Have a strong family. And that will qualify to serve in the church. That's why deacons need to be a husband and one wife and to manage their children and households well. Because they're going to be doing a sort of assistance in the church that causes them to be put on a pedestal a little bit. I'll look finally here at the reward of the deacons. But look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. For those who serve, who deacon well, those who serve as deacons, well, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's two big rewards that God promises to those who serve well as deacons. The first is that those who serve well as deacons, what do they do? They gain a good standing for themselves. The word literally means 
They're put on a pedestal. This isn't why they do it. That's not motivating them. They're not in it to be put on a pedestal so that everyone would see them. But because of their faithful service, because of their lowliness, their willingness to do whatever is asked, God sees them. And God approves of their service. And God says, hey, you see the people who serve, honor them. See what they do and follow them to serve is a glorious thing in the church. It is an exalted thing in the church. It is an honorable thing in the church. It is a respectable thing in the church. And these people who devote their lives like deacons to the service of the church, listen, they will be loved. God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. And the one who humbles himself and says, I will do what you need me to do, church. I will serve in the way you need me to serve, church. That's God will give special grace to those servants. It's even encouraged. Look at 1 Corinthians 16.15. You don't have to turn there if you want. I'll just read it. But he's talking to this church and Paul says, hey, I urge you brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and they have devoted themselves to the deaconing to the service of the saints. And then he says, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Those people who serve like deacons just serve and serve and serve. And every Sunday to them is an opportunity to serve and to minister. And they say, you tell me what to do. I will go and I will do it. Paul says, oh, follow them. Follow that leader. Follow that servant. That's like Jesus to do that. You ever worried that if you do something like that, no one will notice, no one will care? Hebrews 6.10 It says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. God's not unjust. It would be unjust of God to see the service that some people render to Christ and the church and for Him to overlook it and care not. It would be unjust for Him to do that. But He's not unjust. And so He sees your service. He sees your care. He sees your ministry. He calls you to it and He sees it all if no one else sees it. He does. And there are some people in this church and perhaps this very morning that are serving you and you might not even have known it because they've done it behind the scenes. And there are some people who have been serving you in their prayers. And you wouldn't even know it because they maybe haven't even told you, but you're on their list. There are people who are deaconing in the church even right now. And no one knows it but God. And they're serving people. They're loving. They're ministering. They're helping. And God is not unjust. And every ounce of energy you're putting into service, God sees. And He will not overlook that. He sees it. He marks it. He knows what you've done. What a blessing to be reminded. And what an encouragement to keep serving, isn't it? Now there's a second reward mentioned in here. And he says, not only will you gain a good standing, that the people will see that, they'll, they'll love you for it, you'll be like you're on a pedestal, not because you, you want to be, you're not in it for that, but because that's how God treats His servants. But look at what it also says. It says they gain a good standing. They also gain, look at this, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
they gain great confidence. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Did you ever wonder that if you were to die this very moment, if you would in fact go to be with God in heaven, or if you would be lost? Have you ever had these thoughts wavered back and forth? I've spoken to so many people who have experienced this. It's actually quite a common thing in the Christian church to waver and to be unsure at times in your own life. But look at what it says the blessing of serving as a deacon in the church brings. They gain great confidence, assurance, great hope, strong confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When they serve, it's like they're taking a risk. They're saying, "All right, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm stop, I'm gonna stop pursuing selfish ambitions. I'm going for you." And the step forward into service, the step away from selfish ambition and in obedience to Jesus, with the step they take, they find each step is on solid ground. And they go, "Oh yeah, this is worth it." It's like taking a step and another step and another step out on a frozen lake. And if the ice is thick enough and sturdy enough, every step will confirm your confidence. Every step will confirm that this is real. This is legitimate. See, service does that in your life. There's the common denominator with people who are just so always doubting their salvation. And one of those common denominators is they've distanced themselves from the church and specifically from serving people. They're trying to figure out if they're saved all on their own. And they're left to their own Self, sometimes paralyzing analysis. And Paul would give an assurance to those who serve, who just dive in for the Lord. It is going to give you assurance because as you give and give and give, what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The blessing of giving of yourself and of serving will be rewarded with a confidence that He in fact has told you the truth in His Word. And so do you see yourself as a servant? Whether or not you're ever made a deacon, appointed to that office, would you be prepared to give your life in service to the church? I think that's the call for all of us. And if you've joined us this morning and you're, you're not a Christian and you may be totally confused about why we would be talking about deacons. Um, or maybe you've understood it now. And you say, okay, that's cool. Deacons, I like serving. Serving's good. I want to serve too. First of all, I'm so glad you're here to come and you're welcome to come every Sunday. But let me tell you why we so value service. Why Christians have, through the ages, always looked at service as a high, high calling. Because the reason is that we worship a deacon, a servant. Jesus Christ came into the world. He said, not to be served, but to serve. To deacon. To give His life away for the betterment of the people He came to redeem. He came as a servant to you. 
Now this is tremendous news. And so God's fundamental message to humanity is not first and foremost, start serving me. Come on, rile yourself up, get excited, and let's serve. No. The Gospel starts with this message. God created you to love and serve Him. And you and I and every person under the sun has failed in that. We are guilty and we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot serve God the way He calls us to serve. Don't you find that to be true? In your own life? You just can't give God all that He deserves. And you could try to reach down into the resources that you have in your own heart and you would find you're still falling short. Don't you find that to be true? And God isn't just up there saying, come on, get it together. Come on, fix yourself. Serve Me. Serve Me. You can do it. Come on. He came to serve you. He came to give His life for you. You couldn't fix yourself. You couldn't remove your guilt. You couldn't remove your shame. You couldn't be your own Savior. That's the message of the Gospel. And He came to serve you. You can't atone for your sin. All the things you could ever do in your life to try to atone for their sins. You can't wash your hands clean. You can't wash your heart. But God has said, though their sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. He came to serve you. He came to wash you clean. He came to clear your conscience. He came to give you a new heart and to fill you with a new spirit. And He calls you to trust Him. He came to live a perfect life, to die your death on the cross that you could never die, to rise again from the dead, victorious over sin and Satan and hell and death. And being victorious, having accomplished salvation, He says, trust Me. And when you trust Him, He forgives you entirely. Completely. From the inside out. He then loves you and forgives you and welcomes you. And you no longer have to doubt. You no longer have to wonder. If I rest my head tonight and I don't wake up, where will I be? You don't have to wonder. Having trusted Christ, you can sleep tonight. And you know that in Christ you are forgiven and you are beloved and you are saved. This, friends, is why we love to serve because when we do, it's just a little bit of a picture of what our Savior did for us. And so when we serve one another, we're showing people this is what Jesus is like. He came to seek and save sinners like you and me. He came to die as a substitute. He rose from the dead. He invites you at this moment to trust Him. And if you haven't, I invite you to trust Him this very moment. To turn away from whatever self-righteousness you have. Or to turn away from whatever sin you've been committing. You say, oh, I can't change myself, but Jesus, I fall on my face before You. Forgive me. Save me. Cleanse me. And He will. Without a doubt, He will. Because He's the ultimate servant. And we are praying here that the Lord would raise up many servants who in love with Christ say, oh, would I love to be like Him? And they show up to serve. And they say, I'm here not to be served, but to serve. Just like my Savior. 
And we relish in the fact that we're not here trying to earn our salvation, but we're working it out in fear and trembling like Philippians 2 says. Oh, may He raise up many servants, many deacons, whether or not they ever fit into the appointed office. May we all call ourselves deacons in this general sense. May we all serve. May we all minister. May we all be people who are helping one another so that this precious Gospel that we've believed would be continually and repeatedly preached and believed. We get to put an exclamation point on our message this morning um, in a baptism. Alba Valdez repented of her sins and has trusted Christ. And we're going to hear a little bit about that here in a moment. And she has desired to come forward and be baptized. And let me just take this moment to say to all of you, if you have not yet been baptized, this is what Jesus has called all believers to do. In understanding who Jesus is and the desiring to follow Him, to be publicly identifying with Him in baptism. And we praise the Lord because this baptism means there's a person who has said, I'm with Christ and I'm with you. And now we get to move forward together as a family. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a final song and then after the song we'll... we'll get in the tank and we'll do the baptism. Let's, let's pray. So Lord, we know that the call to serve is so in opposition to our carnal, selfish hearts. The call to be self-forgetting in our ministry to others. The call to be disinterested in our own return of what we get from things in the way we love one another. It's so against our natural inclinations, and so we need the Holy Spirit. So Lord, empower us, strengthen us, enable us to supernaturally serve one another. And may You raise up from this church among our number many who would call themselves servants, model their lives after Jesus Christ, and come not to be served, but to serve. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.